y'all, this is Anya from Plastosphere. Remember our episode a few months ago on the history of the Plastics Treaty? To recap, in March, the United Nations Environmental Assembly decided to negotiate a global agreement to tackle plastic pollution. The ambitious plan is to develop a binding treaty covering the full life cycle of plastics within a time span of two years, so by 2024. This week, this process is moving forward at an international meeting in Uruguay. From November 28th to December 2nd, the first session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, INC1 for short, will take place in the city of Punta del Este. I will be sharing updates on Mastodon, where you find me with my new account as at plastosphere at podcasts.social. And here on the audio feed, I'd like to present to you an introduction of what's to expect. It's a guest episode by the Environmental Investigation Agency, which is a non-governmental organization involved in the plastic treaty negotiations. Their podcast ahead of INC1 in Uruguay is really insightful, and they kindly shared it with me. So here it is. Hello, and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast in the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. In just a few short years, the threats posed by rampant plastic pollution to our planet's oceans and to the wider environment has climbed sharply on the international agenda. EIA is especially proud of the strong lead taken by our ocean campaigners to secure a new global plastics treaty to tackle the problem. And from the end of this month, they'll be in Uruguay, where the UN's International Negotiating Committee, or INC for short, holds its first meeting towards achieving that. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today I'm joined by our ocean campaign leader Christina Dixon and ocean campaigner Jacob Keane Hammerson to talk about why the work on this treaty is so important. Chris, Jacob, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Chris, perhaps you could get us started by giving us a brief summary of why the world needs a global plastics treaty in the first place. Yeah, of course, Paul. And I love it when someone asks me to be really brief uh, in explaining what is essentially a really complicated um, transboundary political issue, but I will try my best. Um, so how did we get here and why is this important? I think it's really critical that we understand, and I say this as an ocean campaigner, that plastic pollution is an issue that is now in every environment on earth. Um, and we encounter plastics in basically every aspect of our daily lives from the air that we breathe, the clothes that we're wearing, um, you know, the, the uh, packaging that our food comes in. And now, you know, the latest science is, is extremely concerning. We're seeing plastic in blood, in lung tissue, um, even in breast milk. So it's so ubiquitous now, um, we cannot avoid plastic pollution um, and something needs to be done about it. And I think the kind of important thing from my perspective is that, you know, we are standing in the face of years of failed voluntary commitments from the industry. So, you know, we've all heard about these commitments. We'll have 100% recyclability. You know, we'll reduce our plastics by this date. And it never happens. Actually, what really happens is that the goalposts keep moving um, and these companies quietly you know, hide these commitments somewhere on their website or basically pretend they never even made them in the first place. So, you know, voluntary action is not working. That's for sure. Then the other thing that's an important part of this is that at the national level, it's really difficult for even the most ambitious government to have an impact when it comes to plastic pollution policy. So, you know, you can ban a product from your national context, but essentially borders are porous um, and it's really difficult to stop 
plastic as both a material and a pollutant from moving around. So all of this is just to say that it's clear that voluntary action isn't working. It's clear that at the national level, it's impossible to do something alone. Um, this is really an issue that's of global concern and the global community needs to act together. And that's really how we ended up in March with the decision to negotiate a new plastics treaty. Um, and that's basically the process that's kicking off now. Jacob, if I could bring you in here, I understand that a key aspect of this campaign has involved you and your colleagues building partnerships with other organisations and decision makers around the world to drive the treaty process forward. Could you tell us something of what that entailed? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Paul. Um, and you're totally right. The The global movement to end plastic pollution is, is much larger than just one organisation. And EIA are part of a coalition of civil society, stakeholders and rights holders is over a thousand members from across the world and all of all of whom provide really valuable insights, expertise, experience that are, are super important to understanding and solving the crisis that we're facing. And it's really crucial that these voices are heard. So as an organization that has experience in working in international spaces, we support the coalition in building capacity of groups where this may be their first experience of international negotiations and elevating their voices where we can. And of course, the weight of so many voices is is really important to pushing forward the importance to a global solution to this crisis. And you mentioned we also advocate to decision makers for an effective treaty um, and where we may exchange views on priorities for countries that are being impacted to plastic pollution, as well as understanding the position of maybe those less ambitious countries. Um, so, but in a practical sense, I, suppo I suppose, it involves a lot of virtual meetings at different time zones, webinars, uh, roundtable discussions, uh, as well as EIA putting its vision forward for what an effective treaty could look like to elevate the debate. So when we're going into the fight against plastic pollution, we're sort of going in with our headsets and our keyboards and our laptops um, kind of going in that way. There are tools that we're kind of using. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Now, international agreements can typically take a fairly long time to nail down, as we, as we see pretty much every year. But we've got to the point of negotiating a plastics treaty relatively quickly. Chris, do you think this is because the multiple threats posed by plastic pollution are so clearly evident to all the different parties involved? Absolutely, Paul. I think that we're at a point in time now where we cannot possibly ignore the mountain of evidence that plastic pollution is a huge problem for you know both our human health and for the environment um, there's this concept of the triple planetary crisis which is you know emerging in prominence in, in policy making spaces and you have the climate emergency you have biodiversity loss and you have pollution and plastic pollution is something which really threads across all of these one thing that we really can't forget is that plastics are fossil fuels and plastic pollution is driving the climate emergency. There was a study recently which said that if the plastics life cycle was a country, it would be the fifth largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So to neglect the relationship between plastics and climate would be a huge disservice when it comes to thinking about how we can solve this problem. So I think that's a really important aspect. And I think that the industries that are involved in this problem are largely unregulated. It's kind of like the Wild West. You know, there's no legal obligation to even report on the amount of plastic that's being produced and traded. 
There's no legal obligation to disclose what's in the plastic polymers that are used to make all of the plastic products that we encounter in our daily lives. And, you know, that's a huge risk. You know, the fact that there are 10,000 chemicals that are found in plastics and about a quarter of those are substances of concern, that has a huge impact on basically everything related to the governance of plastics because that means there are substances of concern that are going into products, including food packaging, for example. But it also means that when we're promoting recycling as a solution to the plastics crisis, we're actually doing kind of toxic recycling. We're basically peddling these same problematic materials back through the economy. So, you know, all of this is, is, is information that's out there. It's in the public domain. And I think this concept of, you know, firstly, the right to know. So the right to have access to information about the materials that we're encountering is really critical. And I think that's a kind of foundational concept within, you know, how we want to approach thinking about the plastics treaty. And the other aspect is, that while we're now faced with a huge amount of evidence about the impacts of plastic pollution, there's still a lot that we don't know, but we have more than enough information to act. And that's really where this idea of the precautionary principle comes into play. And so, you know, we should be acting with the information we have kind of preventatively. Um, and that's really, that's really important to remember. So um, I think that we know enough um, and what we know is really, frankly, quite scary. Um, but yeah, it's time to act. Without being wishing to be a doomsayer, what's actually at stake if these negotiations don't deliver a robust and binding global treaty? Uh, I think some of what we just heard from Chris really puts lays out bare what is at stake. And if I may elaborate on some of that, is, you know, plastic pollution, as Chris mentioned, is a planetary crisis. You know, we know that whales are ingesting millions of microplastics every day, billions every few months. Uh, zooplankton in our oceans, which is critical to regulating our climate system, are grazing on plastic particles. And the concentrations of plastic in our soil are growing and growing and growing. And perhaps more scarily, Chris touched on this, the chemicals attached to this plastic, many of which we know are toxic and can cause diseases, and even more, we simply don't know the impacts that they're going to have, are leaching from plastic into the environment and will continue to do so as it sits there and degrades. And what we really have to ask ourselves is when will we reach a threshold at which plastic in the environment will prevent the oceans, the soil, the air from functioning at all and simply choking our planet? And almost second, like along with that, you have to think, do we have any time to waste in preventing from that from happening, uh, which we really don't. And to contextualize these negotiations, we have to recognize that whatever treaty comes out is going to be relied upon by generations to come to deal with the plastics crisis. So negotiators have a tremendous responsibility to get this right for the future of our planet. And we only have to turn to the United Framework, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which had its most recent COP in Egypt just this month. That treaty is actually older than I am. Huh. And we're still behind on addressing climate change, which for younger generations is terrifying as to what the future might look like. And you couple that with a plastics crisis that is threatening to choke the planet. We really we really must act and we have to act decisively and, and come out of this with a, with a robust treaty that's capable of dealing with this crisis. And speaking of the treaty, could you tell us how you think negotiations are going to work in Uruguay? I mean, what do you expect will actually happen at the negotiation committee's first meeting? 
yeah, I can have a go at that. And so I think, you know, Jacob really provided that broad context for what we need the eventual treaty to do, right? You know, he touched on a range of issues that this treaty is going to need to address. And in order to sort of guide us there, we basically need a, a compass. And I would say that for this first negotiations, it's like getting that compass. Um, we need to make sure that in this meeting, which might be quite procedural, you know, people who are looking for this first meeting to be, you know, very explosive and have major outcomes might be disappointed. It's it's unlikely to be that kind of meeting. This is really about setting the goalposts, um, you know, the framework under which the negotiations will happen, agreeing how we're going to negotiate, you know, how we want stakeholders to engage in that. Actually, what is our common language and our common vision that we're trying to achieve? The UN member states, you know, when they adopted the resolution in March, they adopted a resolution to end plastic pollution um, in all environments and using a full life cycle approach. But many of these terms, they weren't really defined. They weren't really elaborated upon. And actually, as it happens, a lot of the different um, actors involved might have quite different understandings, even when it comes to, you know, what plastics even are. So just as an example, whether we govern plastics as a material or as a product and you know, depending on how we view plastics in that context, that will have a huge impact on the eventual control measures that will go into the text of the agreement. Um, and, you know, for example, you might see uh, actors who are involved in the production of raw materials for plastics quite heavily promoting the idea that plastics, you know, the plastics life cycle begin at product design. And that's essentially a tactic to ensure that any obligations, you know, legal obligations that come out of the agreement are shifted completely away from the, the fossil fuel sector um, and they're placed on, you know, the fast moving consumer goods companies. And, you know, while my my sympathy for fast moving consumer goods companies um, is, is pretty low in general, I would say, you know, I, I do actually feel that, you know, they actually have a point, you know, there's been a business coalition that's been launched, which is actually saying, you know, we want to see reductions in virgin plastic production. We're struggling to meet our targets because actually it's cheaper to buy, you know, plastic from fossil fuels than it is to buy recycled plastics. That's completely insane. And that's because we're operating in a completely unregulated environment. So actually, there's a huge business interest in, um, in for example, reducing um, virgin plastic and making sure that it's not competitively disadvantaged, um, disadvantaging them to do the right thing. So these are some of the kind of framing discussions, which I think we'll be having. It's about, you know, what do we want to achieve? How do we view the kind of concepts of prevention and reduction within this broader lens of how we want to deal with plastic pollution? Um and also, it will kind of establish some of the, the parameters. So, you know, who is going to be on the Bureau? Um, so the Bureau is the, the set of governments that are essentially responsible for guiding the process. Um, and it's a really important role because if you don't have a good chair to manage the negotiations, um, that can mean that things are derailed, that, you know, they can't stick to timings, they don't, um, they don't guide the discussion towards decisions. So these are the kind of things that we'll be keeping an eye out for. Um, and we'll be working really closely with um, both partners in, in the civil society sector but we also do a lot of work directly with governments and also with companies. Um, it's very important that there's broad and meaningful stakeholder participation. So we're seeing at the moment, for example, you know, the informal sector like um, waste pickers who are responsible for collecting huge amounts of waste, you know, that us in the UK ship overseas, you know, that sector will be massively impacted by regulations on plastics. So it's very important that people are bringing waste pickers to the negotiations to make sure their voice is heard. And similarly, um, you know, we've heard that communities living on the front line of the petrochemical um, build out in the United States will also be coming. And that's 
a really important voice to be heard and has been really lacking in this discussion so far. So while the negotiations themselves are government to government, you know, us as NGOs, we're not we're not negotiating the text ourselves. Uh, we do play a really vital role in acting as watchdogs, um, providing technical input, um, and also working very collaboratively with with people from all around the world to make sure that this is this is done properly um, and it's done swiftly. So ultimately, skipping over the negotiations process uh, to consider the final outcome in what is going to be two three years, are we looking at? Um, what, what, what do you think an effective plastic treaty would actually look like when, when, it's, when, they, when they finally settle on the language? What would you want to see in it to make it actually what we need it to be? So, Paul, I think you would have noticed maybe some common threads and some of the answers that Chris and I um, have already answered that might give you some hints. But first and foremost, a successful treaty needs to be legally binding. So countries are obliged to curb the crisis uh, that and address this plastic pollution. Uh, so a, a legally binding treaty is essential. Voluntary treaties are going to be set up to fail. Uh, and beyond that, EIA believes there are several essential elements, ingredients to the, to the cooking pot that need to be put in there that a well-designed treaty will have. So these, they, that includes the production of virgin or new plastics needs to be phased down. So any efforts that further down the chain are, are going to be futile if we're still being flooded by these new cheap virgin plastics that are just tipping the scales that are preventing us from moving away to alternatives and, and a, a better system of production and consumption. Uh, you could say that you can't mop the floor while the tap is still running. So we need to kind of turn that tap off. And importantly, we need to eliminate some of the most problematic and hazardous plastic polymers they need to be completely removed and that's what we we would term these upstream measures within the plastics life cycle and secondly we the or what we call the midstream is how we make design and use the plastics and plastics products that that are there so this would include global design standards and principles and investing in effective reuse systems so we can move away from that linear throwaway economy and basically and ensuring everybody's on the same page, yeah? That everybody's exactly. got the same standards, the same goals, that we're all working with the same material, exactly. and the same understanding. And what Chris, what Chris was saying as well about the uh, fast-moving consumer goods companies is, you know, they respond well to the certainty that, that w from the design standards. So the flow of products through the economy is eased. And this also, raising the global standards, it's going to helpfully, hopefully prevent the dumping of poorly designed products on lower income, global south developing countries, economies in transition. And of course, a lot of people would frame plastics in like the, the dominant looking at it as plastic packaging. But I think also we believe a, a, a effective treaty would have clear strategies and approaches for sources of plastic that are outside of packaging. And that includes agricultural plastics, fishing gear, plastic pellets that are transported all around the world that are the that are used to transport plastics and melted and then formed into the products and we also need which is crucially important is a dedicated financial mechanism within the treaty to support its implementation uh, we've seen uh, i'm sure listeners to this podcast would have heard about the montreal protocol before and for example that has a dedicated multilateral fund that really supports its implementation and provides this stable consistent and reliable funding to allow the 
allow the phase down of HFCs and ozone depleting substances to, ha to happen. So that's something that we think is really necessary for this treaty to be successful. And finally, I suppose um, we, there are lots of other environmental treaties out there. We need to make sure that there's harmonization between these existing instruments so um, that we don't have a kind of fragmented regulatory landscape. So that's quite important as well. Uh, I don't know if, Chris, you thought there are any other essential ingredients for the treaty? Well, I can think of many, and I guess you might say that I'm asking for, for the moon on a stick. So I would <laughs> say that in re I think that, you know, I think those are some of the core elements, Jacob. And I think that from my perspective, it's just really key that this treaty is grounded in the principles of environmental justice, the precautionary principle, um, waste prevention, um, and really with a holistic view across the full life cycle of plastics. Like, I just don't believe that we can effectively manage this problem without looking at the entire life cycle impacts of plastic. And that includes on the environment, but also on human health. Um, and I think at the moment, the kind of the terminology in the mandate for the for the treaty negotiations on health is quite um, it's quite vague, so that really needs to be further clarified. I think we should really be viewing this problem as a global health concern as well as an environmental one, um, and I think that's really critical. Thank you both very much for that. Jacob. You have something to add? I would just add one final thing: is I really think as well that we need to ground this treaty in evidence-based decision making as well, and listen to the science and listen to good independent, transparent science that is giving us the facts. Uh, and, you know, while there are knowledge gaps, as Chris mentioned, we know enough that we need to act, but where decisions need to be made on evidence, they should be listening to, you know, the science and, and the evidence that has been uh, put forward by the kind of independent and transparent scientists, which I think is also really important. Absolutely. Um, finally, um, when you guys get out to Uruguay um, and the negotiations get underway, what, what do you anticipate you'll be doing on the ground when you're there? What, what, so, what role will we be playing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Jacob summarised this really well, and it did make me chuckle when he was talking about, you know, how we're there with our laptops. But um, basically, I mean... <laughs> He, he wasn't wrong. Um, but really, in, in reality, you know, the way that we work as a team on the ground is, um, you know, what I would term corridor whispering. Um, so, you know, we like to just, you know, pay attention to what's happening in the room, read the room um, and share information between partners and, and other people that we, we work closely with, um, you know, co-conspirators, you know, looking at getting a temperature check of what's happening, seeing if, you know, then responding to that, you know, are we hearing something that, you know, sounds like, I don't know, that we're steering towards some false solutions. Um, in that case, maybe we need to reach out to some of the scientists that we work with and get some evidence and put that in the right hands at the right time. So, you know, there's that kind of, um, you know, reading the room, working the room kind of work that we do. And that's a really key part of how EIA work. Um, we've also produced a number of briefings, both, you know, for the treaty as a whole, but also specifically for this meeting. Um, and we've been reaching out to different um, delegations with those briefings just to see if, you know, we can help elaborate on any of the ideas within there. Um, and we do try to, you know, meet with different stakeholders to kind of talk through our recommendations to make sure those are really clear um, and make sure that, you know, that everyone understands what we're asking for. You know, we have in our team, we have, you know, kind of policy experts, um, people like Jacob, who do, who do a lot of work with, you know, different stakeholder groups, coalition management. Um, and then we also have legal advisors. So it's quite a dynamic team. Um, and we sort of try to deploy where we're, we're 
most needed. Um, also things like side events um, and yeah, a lot of a lot of coordination and drinks receptions. I think that's the most important part of lobbying that no one Where ever talks about. Happens, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, Paul, it really, I think so. Um, yeah, and I guess like another thing, and it really relates to what Jacob just said about um, you know the need for impartial and evidence based decision making, and something that is new to this negotiation, which we haven't seen at the sort of pre negotiations over the last few years, is huge industry presence. Um, and I'm sure you know you would have seen in the news a lot of the criticism around um, the presence of fossil fuel lobbyists at COP, uh, and also you know Coca Cola being a main sponsor of COP. You know a lot of people were highly skeptical about about that, and there was quite a press backlash. Um, you know. My personal view is that you know polluters should not be able to influence uh, the negotiations, which are going to directly affect their industries. Um, so I think you know keeping a close eye on on what this huge industry group is now doing in this space will be really important, um, and making sure that it's clear to the secretariat that you know any um, contracts for research, for example you know, should be guided by a very clear conflict of interest policy. Um, so, for example, you know, consultancies that also work for um, the industry should not be able to take contracts um, for evidence that will inform this treaty. And there's precedent for that in other, you know, similar things like the tobacco control regulation. Um, and so I think in this first meeting, we're going to be keeping a really close eye on what the industry is doing. And, and I'm, I'm careful to say the industry, but I, I do understand the industry is not a monolith. And we work very collaboratively with a lot of progressive elements within the industry. Um, but there's also, you know, a, an element within that who, um, who I think need to be, you know, a little BDI on. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to you guys keeping your BDIs on out there and um, feed them back to us and let us know how it goes. Chris, Jacob, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks, Paul. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thank you very much for joining us, and wherever you are, stay safe out there.